Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 John chapter 3, if you would please. You know, we've sung this morning about we will remember. And we'll talk tonight about our past and present and future. And so I want us to look at 1 John 3 this morning, the topic matter being, do you know who you are and where you're going? Do you know who you are and where you're going? 1 John chapter 3, uh, if you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, there should be a Purack Bible there in front of you for your convenience And you'll find our scripture this morning on page 1022 there. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? 1 John chapter 3, beginning there in verse 1, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now look at that phrase. If you're reading from a Bible that does not have that little phrase, and so we are, it should. That little phrase belongs there. And I'll have more to say about that later. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father, you said that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And we would ask right now that indeed he would be our teacher. That he would open our hearts and minds, our eyes and ears, to understand your word. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of being called your children. And having our names written in your book of life. And what that means for us now and what it will mean for us in the future. Lord, help us to live accordingly as those who are saints as those who belong to you and you've told us that we're to be salt and light we're to be different daily help us to remember who we are in Jesus name I pray Amen Probably the single most famous case of amnesia would be that of Henry Gustav Meliasson, better known simply as H.M. He's also had documentaries done on his life and has been referred to in these shows as the man who couldn't remember. Born in Hartford, Connecticut, he lived from 1926 to 2008 and was widely studied from the late 1950s until his death in 2008. Studies on his memory have played an important role in the relationship between the brain and memory. 
After conducting studies for years on HM, many old theories have been cast aside and new theories have been established. His brain now resides in sections at the University of California in San Diego. It's widely held that his problems began when he was only nine years old after suffering a traumatic head injury in a bicycle accident. Soon after that accident, epileptic seizures began. On September the 1st, 1953, he underwent a new approach to treating epilepsy whereby the doctors removed certain sections of his brain. The surgery was successful in curing his epilepsy. However, it left him for the rest of his life without a memory. Despite his amnesia though, he actually scored quite high on intelligence test. Now folks, while that is certainly a great tragedy, as believers, we also sometimes forget who we are. And we forget how we are supposed to be living in this world while we wait the second return of Christ. And so John writes in this passage wanting us to understand these things very clearly. He writes that we might know our father, our family, and our future. I want you to remember today that John's readers were being troubled by false teachers. The church was under attack by a group of heretics who were trying to come in and say Jesus was not really who the Bible says he is, nor did he do what the Bible says he truly did. They were Gnostic heretics, at least the forerunners to that heresy. And so John is writing to combat all of that and that his readers might be firmly established in their faith. And to be established in their faith, he wanted them to understand again what their true identity actually is. Folks, as Christians today, we need to understand that because we get so busy about life and we're bombarded by so many different messages in the world. We're in the information age and something can happen in this segment of the world or any segment of the world and within just a few minutes, it's broadcast all over uh, CNN and Fox News. And so we're called on constantly to process large amounts of information. We're busy about our own stuff in life. And then on top of that, we might be in our yards working on a Saturday morning and a couple of members of a cult group come around and they're twisting God's truth. So it can be so easy to get away from what the scripture says our true identity really is. I want us to see this morning what John says about that. And what we're going to learn here is that we are to understand our identity in Christ. We're to understand our future hope. And we are to understand our Christian responsibilities that flow out of this. 
First thing I want you to see with me this morning is the fact that we have received God's love. We have received God's love. John writes there in 1 John, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. In the December 4th, 1989 issue of Newsweek magazine, there was an article about a new mental disorder for people who are delusional that they are the object of someone's love. They've named this new disorder for those who go around and without any grounds for believing it, without any reason to believe it, they imagine that somebody is just hopelessly in love with them. It's called erotomania. Sometimes when the person who they fantasize that is in love with them doesn't appear to be responding to their advancements, they may even do something extreme or violent. It's said that when John Hinckley Jr. shot President Ronald Reagan, that he was suffering from a form of erotomania with his fixation on the actress Jodie Foster. And he shot President Reagan in order to get her attention and to impress her. But John is saying, don't miss this, folks. There's nothing delusional about what I'm about to tell you. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He uses a transition word here. It's meant to jar us out of apathy. It is meant to get our attention. He says, behold, I I want you to make note of this. I want you to get it down firmly in your minds. What manner of love the Father has given to us. Now the little phrase there, what kind of love, translates a word that means an out-of-this-world type of love. The Greek scholar and commentator Alfred Plummer writes that the word always implies great astonishment. John R.W. Stott says it's as though John uh, knows the Father's love is so unearthly that he wonders where this sort of love could possibly have come from as if it's from another world or another planet. And indeed it is. It's from the throne of the Heavenly Father. See what, behold, see what manner of love, what out of this kind of world love the Father has bestowed on you. We see some things here about God's love. First of all, God's love is not the love of the world. The love of the world tends to be conditional. I will pat you on the back if you'll pat me on the back. I'll love you if you love me. I'll be kind to you if you'll be kind to me. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we've got to reach a higher level than that. Anybody can can do that type of love that is conditional. We can love those who love us back. That's the language of the world. We see it every day. But folks, God's love is different. 
The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we, while we were his enemies, while we were alienated from him, while there was nothing good in and of ourselves to merit any type of salvation, in that condition, while we were God's enemies, God openly displayed his love for us in Jesus Christ. God's love is unlike anything that we see in the world. God's love gives us a unique picture of God himself. John calls him here the Father. Folks, that was revolutionary. What a unique way of talking about God. Now, in the Bible, we see many different names for God. I want us to think about those for a moment before we come back around to this word, Father. In Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to God with the name. Moses gives him the name Elohim. And in the Hebrew, it has the plural ending, signifying evangelical Christians believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But He's Elohim. He's the mighty God, the creator God. He said, let there be light. And there was light. All that is, he spoke into existence. That's what that name Elohim signifies. And then later on in the book of Genesis, Genesis 15, Abraham calls God Adonai. That's a name for God meaning Lord, meaning master. And then later on in the Old Testament, we're introduced to the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh. The fact that God enters into covenant with his children. All of these names we see in the Old Testament. And so many other names given to God. Usually when the people in the Old Testament had some new experience with God, there would be some new name attached to him that, that revealed how it was that God had worked in the midst of his people. But we come to the New Testament and we run into this name right here, pater in the Greek. It is a very personal and intimate name for God. In the Gospel of John alone, Jesus referred to God as his pater 156 times. A father loves his children, protects his children, guides his children, provides for his children. John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. And that word bestowed or given to us, it, it literally means that God's love is not measured out. God is not stingy. God is not a miser. God is a good God. He's a benevolent God. He's a giving God. And he has lavished his love on us. I think of that occurrence in the Gospels where Mary walked into the room where Jesus was teaching his disciples. And she broke that flask of perfume or precious ointment and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. It was a display of lavish love. Judas didn't like it. He thought it was a great waste. 
But Jesus commended Mary and said, wherever this gospel of the kingdom is preached, what she has done will also be widely known. Hers was an act of lavish love. Well, what John is saying here is that God's love is an act of lavish love that defines all other acts of lavish love. See what manner of love the Father has lavished on his children. We see also that God's love gives us a new standing whereby we're called children of God. Now let's review a moment our standing before God. In, in Genesis 1.26 we see there that we're created in the image of God, male and female. He created us in his image. And we see there also that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and they enjoyed this very special communion with God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, something very tragic happens. Adam and Eve sin. The fall of mankind that spread to the whole human race. Thereafter in scripture, man is referred to in various ways. We are transgressors. We are sinners. We're those who have transgressed the law of God and we've taken false steps. We've gone our own way as sheep who have gone astray. We are those who are alienated from God and His promises. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And in Romans 8 he says there is nothing that we can do in that state that can please God. And in that condition, the Bible says that we are objects of God's wrath. And that's what we deserve. Now, as objects of God's wrath in the scripture, there's two different words used for God's wrath. There is thumos and there is orge. Thumos wrath, the thumos anger of God are those sudden outbursts of wrath like in the wilderness when the children of Israel would sin against God and something would happen. God would cause a plague or something and 10 or 20 or 30,000 of them would be wiped out in one day. That's an example of thumos, the wrath of God that's thumos but then there is the orge of God, it is the patient wrath of God that builds over time as men live in rebellion and live in sin and God is patient but finally God's had enough and God exercises his orge whether it's thumos or whether it's orge, as lost sinners, we are under the wrath of a holy God and we are getting exactly what we have deserved. But folks, once we come to Christ, we've got a whole new standing before God. Aren't you glad of that? We're no longer under the wrath of God. We're no longer under the thumos or the orge of God. But we are called what? Children of God. Isn't that great? Let's think of some of our names and descriptions now. 
For those who have come to salvation in Christ, we are referred to as saints, those who have been set apart. We are members of the body of Christ, where Christ is the head. The scripture says we make up the beloved. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter refers to us as living stones that are being built into a temple to the praise and honor and glory of God. Wonderful ways that the children of God are described. But folks, there is no other description. There is no other name that communicates as much tender affection as what John uses here when he calls us children. Children of God. For those in Christ, we are now children of God. Now, not everybody is God's child. Yes, everybody is God's creation, but not everybody is God's child. Only those who have been born again, who have been regenerated from above by the power of the Holy Spirit, and their lives are brand new, their lives have become a new creation in Christ. It is only those who can be called children of God. I.H. Marshall in his commentary on the epistles of John says that this in this name, this is an act of legitimation. You see, in, in Bible days, a father would name his child and thereby make a permanent claim to identity and ownership. In other words, a child's identity is not in the child's hands. It's not up to the child. It's in the father's hands. It's up to the father. And so when the heavenly father calls you his child, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what you are. You can count on it because we serve a God who cannot lie. Through Christ, we become children. We become members of God's household with all the rights and privileges thereof. And as children, the New Testament says, we are also joint heirs with Christ. And we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But it is true. John says that we should be called children of God and so are we. I want you to underscore that little phrase at the end of that first sentence in verse 1 where he says that we should be called children of God and so we are. Unfortunately, that phrase, and so we are, does not show up in some translations of the Bible that are based on later Greek manuscripts that became the foundation of what is referred to as the Textus Receptus or the Received Text. But in the older, better manuscripts, the earlier manuscripts, uh, some of the manuscripts in the Alexandrian fa text family, the Western text family, have this phrase. And biblical scholars believe that that phrase belongs there, that it's important. What's the big deal? Because John is saying it's not too good to be true. It may sound too good to be true that you and I could be called the children of God. But that is exactly what we are. And that's what he's emphasizing by that little phrase. 
Somebody might say, who, me, a child of God? I just struggle believing that. I don't deserve it. No, none of us do. But John says, yes, you can believe it. It's true. And if you are in Christ and you're God's child, the Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 ends by saying there will be no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, I want you to walk out of here remembering that this morning. God loves you and he's lavished his love upon you. And for those of you who are in Christ, you know that you've been born again. You can think back to that time in your life. You may not remember the exact hour or the exact day, but you should be able to remember the exact period of time at least. Because if you're born again, you're new in Christ, the old things have been, have been passed away and behold all things have become new and so you ought to be able to identify somewhat of when that happened and John is saying if that's happened to you you're God's child regardless of what the world thinks of you regardless of the hardship you might be going through you're God's child now if you're not in Christ you can't claim that You're currently alienated from God and you're under a state of God's wrath and his just condemnation. And if you die in that condition, you will forever be separated and alienated from a holy God and from all the promises that he has waiting for his children. And so I would appeal to you to come to Christ before it's too late. But again, if you're in Christ, you're his child. A second thing John would have us to remember is that we have received the world's loathing. He goes on to say the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world does not know us. Folks, that is a loaded phrase. There's a lot more there than meets the eye at first. It implies that the world rejects us. The world does not understand us. The world does not receive us. And the world even hates us. But the world is only giving us what it gave the Lord Jesus. Remember John chapter 1 where John writes, He came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. They mocked him. They ended up crucifying him. John is saying for this reason... For this reason, because we're his children, the world does not know us because it did not know him. In other words, there is a theological reason for the world's rejection of us. The world does not know God and so it does not know or recognize or love those who are God's children. It's as though what the scripture is saying here is that the world has rejected the entire family tree. God's entire family tree. 
They don't receive you. They don't love you. They don't respond well to you because they don't know God. Too many Christians want the approval of the world. But folks, the way the world responded to Christ is the way the world will respond to you. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who has sent me. We've received the world's loathing, the world's hatred. The world does not understand our relationship to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Folks, how do lost people act? They act like lost people, right? Satan has blinded their minds. That's why they do what they do. And that's why they think what they think. And that's why they hate like they hate. Why they hate Christians. They hate Christians because they hate God. The world does not understand our convictions. Don't be disturbed if some of those around you do not understand you. Now, we don't want to add offense to the gospel. It's not our intention to be offensive. We need to understand that the gospel in and of itself is an offense. And it's supposed to be. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. And he goes on to say, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. If we share the gospel and live out the gospel that in and of itself will be an offense to some and even those closest to you may be offended. Jesus said your enemies may be those of your own household. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 you've had enough in the past of the evil things the godless enjoy. Sex, sin, lust, getting drunk, wild parties, drinking bouts, and the worship of idols and other terrible sins. Of course, your former friends will be very surprised when you don't eagerly join them anymore in the wicked things they do. And they will laugh at you in contempt and scorn. But just remember that they must face the judge of all, living and dead. They will be punished for the way they've lived. Maybe you've had the same experience. After conversion, perhaps some of your old friends don't understand you anymore. Maybe some of them don't understand you and they don't like you anymore. 
And they quite frankly don't know who you are anymore. Because see, you've been changed. That's what John says here. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Third thing I want you to see. We possess a glorious longing. He says beginning in verse 2. Beloved we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have this hope now. We are longing for a city whose builder and maker is God. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Where is Christ today? Where's Christ today? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 says, after he made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And seated there at the right hand of the Father, the Bible says, he is making intercession for us. And then in John chapter 14, the scripture says, he is preparing a place for us. And if he's preparing a place for us, he will come again and receive us unto himself that where he is there we may be also. We're to be looking for that place. We're to be looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. And Christ there in heaven is enthroned in majesty and honor and power and glory. I think of what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1, John writes that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard a sound behind him. And as he turned to see what it was... He saw and he heard the voice of the one calling to him. And he he saw that image of the glorified Christ. And the Bible says he fell at his feet as a dead man. We don't see Christ today. We can't. We couldn't behold his glory in our current state. But one of these days this robe of flesh will fall off in death. And we will be like him. 2 Corinthians 5 says one of these days this tent's going to collapse. The the tent pegs of this life are going to collapse. And this life being compared to a tent that is temporary and fragile, it's going to collapse. But in that day, it's not over. Paul says in that day, we have a building prepared for us by God, eternal in the heavens. And we will be like him. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so we are to be longing for our glorified body. Folks, at Christ's second coming, we're going to get our new glorified body. And it's going to be like Christ's body. It's going to be like what the disciples saw in the upper room after the resurrection. When Jesus suddenly appeared to them, he could pass through the wall and yet they could touch him and he could eat. A mystery. But that's a clue to what our resurrection body is going to be like. 
Peter and James and John saw Christ in his glorified body. They, they got a, a glimpse ahead of time of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I just mentioned John a moment ago in Revelation chapter 1. Well, folks, that's what we're going to see one day. We're going to be with Christ. We're going to see him in his glorified state. And you and I are going to be glorified because we're going to be like him. 1 Corinthians 15, 40 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die, because there'll be a generation alive at the second return of Christ. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable when the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory folks that's good news good news that's our future we have a heavenly home waiting we have a heavenly body waiting we we are going to be in a place where there is no more sin no more suffering no more grief no more pain because he's making all things new and that's what John wants us to see about our future he wants us to understand our identity now if we're in Christ. And he wants us to see what our future inheritance is going to be. It's going to be better than you and I can even imagine. Paul said in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the promise of God. You see Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And the tenses there make it clear that in the mind and the heart of God, it's as good as done. It's a sure thing. Those whom he's justified will one day be glorified. We shall see him as he is. We will experience a transformation that will make us perfectly holy and righteous. And we will have a pure capacity to worship and glorify God in a totally satisfying and joyful fashion. Folks, we need to remember that this week. Remember that you're God's child. He's lavished his love on you. He's not stingy. He's not a miser. He's a benevolent God. He's adopted you into his family. He's written your name in the family book, in the Lamb's book of life. 
You're a joint heir with Christ. You know, when you and I get discouraged in the world, we need, we need to remember who we are in Christ. Remember that the world will not receive you. Again, that's the way it's supposed to be. And so if our present now is that we are children of God and we're written in the family book, if our future is that we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is, what's our present to be? John writes about that in verse 3 and he points out that we're to be living in purity. Look at what he says there in verse 3. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You hear what the scripture is saying? In light of what God has done for you to redeem you, in light of where you're going, how should you be living now? Saints of God ought to despise sin. We ought to be gaining the victory over sin. Now, we're going to sin until we see Jesus. First John makes clear. We don't reach some kind of complete sanctification this side of heaven whereby we will never, ever, ever sin again. We don't. But folks, there ought to be a growing victory over sin in our lives. And I hope when you sin, God takes you to the woodshed. And I hope you repent. We ought to live in purity because as we're living in purity, that's when we'll be able to be salt and light to the world. If we're just like the world, if the world doesn't see any difference in us, then how in the world are we going to be salt and light to a lost and dying world? But if we're different, then we'll make a difference. Let's not forget who we are and whose we are. And we need to long to be everything God wants us to be. In 1993, they had an annual meeting of the American Heart Association. 300,000 doctors, nurses, and researchers met in Atlanta, Georgia to discuss, among other things, the importance of a low-fat diet. However, during mealtimes, it was noticed by those in the food industry that this group was consuming fast food, things like double bacon cheeseburgers and fries, at the same rate as the other convention attendees. <laughs> One of those in the food industry asked a cardiologist, are you not concerned that you're sending the wrong message? He said, no sir, son, because you see, I've taken off my name badge. Too many Christians have taken off their name badge and they don't live remembering who they belong to and what he's done for them. They don't remember where they're headed and what that's going to be like and so they forget how they're supposed to be living now until that day. 
don't forget. Perhaps you need Christ today. Maybe there's never been that time that you've been written, that you know that you've been written in the family book. Because you know you've never been born again. You, you may know that you've joined a church. You've even been baptized. But you know in your heart of hearts. You know as good as you're seated here today. You know that you've never been born again. You know you've never been born from above by the Spirit. And made a new creation in Christ where Old things were laid aside and everything became new. You might be a good person in the eyes of the world. You might be a good person in your own eyes. But you know, again, in your heart of hearts, you've never been transformed from the inside out. To where now you long for the things of God. My friend, you need to be saved. I'll be here to pray with you. We'll ask God to do that transformation. Maybe there are others who know that transformation has taken place. But yet, walking through the world, you've got too much mud on your shoes. You've become too much like the world. And you need to get back to how you're supposed to be living. Maybe in a public way at the altar this morning, you need to deal with some sins that have crept in and gotten a stranglehold on your life. Others need to remember where you're headed because you're discouraged. And you need to remember what the Bible says, that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it ever even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be better than you can even imagine. And we need to live in that hope.